Welcome everybody, welcome to the very first event of the Human Rights Program this year. Uh, my name is Mila Verstig, I'm a, the director of the Human Rights Program and I'm also a professor here at the law school. And together with Rachel, uh, we're, we hope to organize a number of events uh, and sort of lunch events over the course of the year. Uh, so our first speaker, Corbin Addison, is a friend of the law school. Uh, he is a graduate of this law school and he's come here a number of time to, times to talk about his work. So Corbin Addison is the author of uh, three international best-selling novels already, A Walk Across the Sun, uh, The Garden of, the Bur of Burning Sand, and The Tears of Dark Water, and then his forthcoming uh, novel, The Harvest of Thorns, which he will talk about today. His work has been published in 20 different countries and addresses some of the wor world's most pressing human rights problems. Uh, in researching his novels, Co Corbin is known to travel all over the world, meeting with experts, uh, activists, governments, officials, criminals, and survivors of crimes. Uh, and I, according to his bio, and we can always ask him more about this, I always love his stories. He has gone undercover in the brothels of Mumbai. He spent time in the slums of Zambia and South Africa, visited refugee camps in Kenya and Somalia, and spent three nights aboard a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier and cruiser in the Arabian Sea. So uh, I guess that gives you something for the Q&A if nothing else comes up. Um, he, as I said, he has a law degree uh, from this law school. Uh, after completing a judicial clerkship, he spent six years in private practice and then made this very bold decision to quit law practice and become a full-time novelist, which maybe we want to ask him about as well. Um, so last year he talked about his novel, A Tears of Dark Water, and today he will be talking about his new novel, A Harvest of Thorn. Um, Corbin will talk for about 40 minutes or so, after which there'll be some time for question and answer for about 20 minutes. So uh, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks so much. It's always a, a delight to be back here at the law school. And this is actually my favorite place to speak because this was my favorite place when I was a student. I used to come in here. Um, and close the doors uh, with the permission of the receptionist and play that piano over there. Um, I've since grown quite rusty, but uh, I enjoyed it quite a lot. And there was one day I remember um, when the door opened and in walked Mortimer Kaplan himself. And I was terrified because I, I was sure that I was, you know, I was defacing his, you know, his piano. And <laughs> I didn't know how that, that got there and anything else. He walked up with a big smile on his face, just like, you know, love what you're playing. Who are you? You know, we had this lovely conversation. So this is, you know, an especially fun place for me to get to speak. Um, I want to talk today uh, about the subject of my new story, A Harvest of Thorns, which is uh, the global consumer economy. It's a subject, obviously, that concerns all of us. $22 trillion in annual sales worldwide, a zillion products. We all participate in it. And frankly, I would say that we all love participating, participating in it. We love uh, buying things. We love eating the things we buy or wearing the things we buy. Um, but behind and beneath all of this, I would assert, is a pretty grand illusion. What do I mean by that? Well, go into a store, any store, brick and mortar, uh, online, and what do you see? You see beautiful products that are sitting there beckoning you to touch, to feel, to imagine what life would be like if you bought them. See, the retailers and the advertisers are selling us more than just the stuff. They're selling us a story. What they want us actually to do is to imagine what life would be like if we spent our hard-earned money on their things. But see, the story that they're selling us is incomplete. It's fundamentally incomplete because it leaves out everything that happened before those products arrived on the shelves. The past has been completely deleted from that story. And in fact, the transaction has been sanitized. So again, all we see is it's just us and the products and, and the question of whether or not we're going to buy. That sanitized picture is intentional. Why is that? Well, all of us, I imagine, know how hot dogs are made. And yet, how many of us had a hot dog on Labor Day? I mean, I certainly did. The question of whether or not to eat a hot dog is not about what happened before. It's always just about how good it smells at the moment at which you see it on the grill in your friend's backyard 
and then you know the decision about whether or not I want to put it in my mouth. You don't think about mechanically separated meat. You don't think about it uh, being blown off a carcass and packed together uh, and then injected with red food dye in order to look like something approximating animal meat that you would like to eat. You just think about, again, the smell. That's the illusion. So that illusion is present across the economy in so many different industries. So everything from clothes to toys to electronics to furniture to coffee and shrimp and, and chocolate, uh, the list of, of goods that are tainted by all manner of uh, abuse and environmental degradation goes on and on. If we knew the whole story, we'd see this. But of course, we're not supposed to see the whole story, and we can't see the whole story. Things like child labor, forced labor, sweatshop conditions, rampant sexual abuse is all there behind the scenes and beneath, behind the veil. Not with every product, not by a mile. There are a lot of fine products, but how in the world can we as consumers tell the difference? We can't. So we go into a store and we make a decision entirely on the basis of the story that the advertisers and retailers want us to make it upon, which is again about the future and not about the past. Now the, iron the, the irony here, and, and um, some might imagine this to be totally strange, but the companies that are selling us stuff, they themselves don't know the whole story. At least they claim not to know the whole story, and I, would, I, I believe them. I, based upon now the way I, I understand the, the sort of machinery of the way the consumer economy works, they don't in fact. In fact, they know a whole lot less than any of us can, can possibly imagine. Now, they don't really want to know it, though. So it's not just about uh, you know, claiming your ignorance. It's about actually, as human beings, not really wanting to ask the question how it is that we are capable of continually to produce high profits for our shareholders and keep our prices so low for consumers. At the end of the day, we just want to do that. And we, just want, and we want to, to control our optics, and we want to control our reputation. So what do companies do? And every big company does this. They have corporate social responsibility departments, CSR departments, that are staffed by really lovely people, winsome people. They often don't have much power internally, but they you know, do have the PR department that they can, can access whenever there's, there's an issue. Um, the companies have codes of conduct. Codes of conduct are attached to all their supply contracts. So if you're a supplier, one of you know, thousands and thousands of suppliers for Walmart, you can go online and find their code of conduct. It's a mile long. I mean, it's like, it's like 30 pages long, and it's all got all of these standards that the suppliers are supposed to live up to, and all of them are the kind of standards you would expect here in the West. Um, you know, wage hour limitations, got to pay people for overtime, can't sexually harass your workers, no child labor, no forced labor, you know, got to maintain adequate safety in your, in your factory, and it's out the wazoo. So anytime there's an issue, the companies trot out their code of conduct and say, hey, look, you know, this is what we're doing to try to control what's going on overseas. I mean, every company has policies that require their factories to be audited, usually twice a year. Sometimes companies participate in things like the Fair Labor Association or Social Accountability International. These are what are called multi-stakeholder initiatives, and they're essentially collectives, voluntary collectives of the brands and companies doing business overseas, and they're supposed to hold each other accountable. Now, that's more ostensible than actual, but in fact, these, these things exist and just about every company participates in it. They all have foundations and they give millions of dollars to charity. Um, again, to control optics and, and to you know, buoy their reputation. Um, I don't have any problem with any of this. I think all of it's great. But at the end of the day, knowing what I know about what's beneath the surface, it's obviously so far from enough. So I'm gonna turn my attention more to the fashion industry here, which is actually what I focus on in A Harvest of Thorns. Um, this applies, like I said, to a lot of different industries, but fashion is what I know the most about. $3 trillion in annual sales. So of the 22, the chunk that, uh, that fashion takes is three. It's probably, uh, if not the most globalized, it's one of the most globalized of all the retail industries. Clothes are made everywhere but Antarctica, and if you could find a way to make money in Antarctica, if there was any human who lived there, I guarantee you there would be a garment factory there. Um, because fundamentally, uh, uh, the poorer the country, the cheaper the labor force, the happier 
uh, brands are to do business there, especially for making the basic items, the things that we pay a few bucks for, things like t-shirts, uh, pants, shorts, kids' clothes, um, and cheap jeans and stuff like that. Um, I was surprised to find out that some of the most profitable companies in the world are fashion companies uh, or conglomerates that have as their mainstay a fashion brand. Yet all of this is built upon the backs of workers who in a lot of places are making no more than $2 a day. In garment factories around the world, sweatshop conditions are the norm, not the exception. It's basically the way it was in this country 100 years ago. But if it were happening here, of course, it would get the attention of the government. The Department of Labor and OSHA and the National Labor Relations Board would have something to say about it. But when it happens overseas, not a whole lot of people pay attention. And sweatshops, as I mentioned before, are only the tip of the iceberg. Even the most responsible companies, and I would say that Patagonia is probably the gold standard for a responsible apparel company, all of them, every one, has forced and child labor in their supply chains. Now, Patagonia at least is looking for it and willing to tell the public that, hey, we found this, even in our suppliers. Most brands aren't looking for it. Like I said, they don't want to see it. They don't work very hard to find it. They talk a good talk in the media, and yet their walk is fundamentally defective. So how is this possible? How does, how does the abuse take place? How is it that the brands themselves don't even really know what's going on or don't know as much as they should? Here's how. So every brand in the world, the big brands uh, have tens of thousands of suppliers in something like anywhere between 30 and 50 countries. Um, it's astonishing. So the, the suppliers that they do business directly with are what I would call model suppliers. So they're big companies themselves. They often own multiple factories. If you walk into any one of these factories, and I did in, in a number of different countries, you wouldn't see anything fundamentally wrong with them. You'd see fire extinguishers next to multiple safety exits that are marked. You would see lots of different exits. You'd, you'd see uh, uh, workers in, in, you know, in space. I mean, they, they would not be crammed together. Uh, there wouldn't be flammables everywhere um, just waiting to go up in, in flame. You'd see managers behaving themselves. You'd see workers who don't look like they're in a sweatshop. And you'd walk through it and you'd go, wow, huh. There might even be a, a water safety or a water treatment facility there. Um, you know, something very forward thinking in a lot of these, these places. See, these are the, the factories that the brands love and love to do business with. And that's, this is where they send their representatives. So if, if uh, a brand, say, you know, take Target, they send a, uh, one of their representatives, their sourcing execs overseas. Uh, that sourcing exec's gonna stay in the, you know, the local Mandarin Oriental probably won't even go to Bangladesh, we will go to Bangkok and require the Bangladeshis to come to Bangkok because it's a, it's a nicer place. And then they're, if they go on a tour, they're going to tour one of these places and they're going to sort of at the end of their, the, the day, they're going to say, look, this is great, wonderful, we'll keep doing business here. These are also the factories that all the auditors love because the reality is that 99.99% of abuse isn't happening here. The abusers and what one of my friends, this fixer that helped me in, in Malaysia, uh, he said in this wonderful quote that lean, mean, human abusing machines are the subsidiary factories that work beneath the model factories in the supply chain. So these subsidiaries come in all manner of shapes and sizes. Some of them are no better than a corrugated tin shed with sewing stations just jammed together and flammables everywhere. These subsidiaries survive on subcontracted orders from the model factories. The model factories are the ones with the export licenses. They're the ones with, that can go to the government and say, we have the capacity, uh, so give us an export license. And the brands come and they say, you know, we need a 500,000 piece order, can you do it? And they're the ones who say, yeah, we've got the capacity. Of course, in reality, they don't always have the capacity, and this is what happens. So they get an order from the brand and, they, and the brand says, you know, we're not going uh, we're, we're to actually take more than 30% of your capacity. Typically the brands do this to, to insulate themselves later from the, the allegation that the factory is actually theirs. So we're only going to take 30% of your, your capacity. And so then the model factory has this giant order and says, what are we going to do with it? We got to turn it around in, you know, average of 60 days, sometimes 30 days. Sometimes there are change orders. This happens all the time in fashion. And these change orders come in, and, or the big orders come in, and what, they do, what do they do? They get on the phone, 
and they call a buddy. And the buddy is somebody who owns a subsidiary. And the buddy says, of course I can do it. Um, and it's all on the phone. And, and what, what's interesting, though, and you can imagine this, if, the, brand, if the, the model factory has a certain margin, which, because the brands are constantly demanding lower and lower prices, faster and faster turnarounds, those margins are getting squeezed from the top. But then you imagine that model factory going to, to his buddy and saying, I'll you know, let you make the same clothes with the same fixed costs, but you're going to have to do it for less. And then the tier two factory says, okay, I'll do it. And they take it. And they, they then often run into jams in the process. And so they then get on the phone and call another buddy who may, the, first, the model factory might not even know about it. The brand may never have heard of this guy on the third level or even the fourth level to do part of the order. But again, with a, a lower margin, with a, a more squeezed margin. But the fixed costs don't change. So, you know, facilities cost a certain amount. Water costs a certain amount. A ton of water is used in making clothes. Um, electricity costs a certain amount. The fabric is coming from the model factory. They already bought it. They're not going to give, you know, the subsidiaries discounts. So what are they going to do? On a lower margin, they're going to squeeze the only costs they can squeeze, which are labor and safety. So when you see a factory disaster in the news, say the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh back in 2013, it's almost always a subsidiary factory. And when asked, the brands who were doing business there and whose clothes were being made there, they almost always say, we have no idea who this person is, or we did not authorize them to, do, to make our clothes. Because in reality, the order didn't go to them. Now, whether or not they knew about it, that's a question that only they can answer. But always, they say the same thing. We didn't know about it. So here's an example. In 2012, in November, uh, a, a fire broke out at the Tazreen Fashions Factory in, in the northern part of Dhaka, Bangladesh. So I went there. I was able to meet some of the survivors. One of the occupational hazards of doing my job is that um, it's a joy on one level, and it's, it's also very difficult sometimes um, to sit down with people who have survived hellish things and who have memories that are scars on their mind and who are, in this case, permanently disabled, um, and ask them questions. And here I am, you know, a relatively rich American coming and sitting in their hovel. Um, I sat down in these cinder block dwellings, the one-room homes that these people lived in, in the shadow of the burned-out factory. And I asked them hard questions. What was it like? Um, there was one story in particular that, that haunts me, and frankly, I, I don't always know how to hold these stories, but her name was Alia. She was 25, had a husband and two kids working on the fourth floor of the factory when the fire broke out, did whatever anyone would, which is try to, to escape down the single stairwell. Um, the, the factory was a fire trap. It only had one stairwell in the center, led down to the, the ground floor, which is the storage area full of flammables, which of course is where the fire started. Stairwells blocked. She returned to the fourth floor, laid down with a friend. Almost all of these are young women, almost all of them in their 20s, some in their 30s, few men. Um, she laid down with her friend, uh, held hands until it got um, too crazy and hot. Somebody broke uh, a window nearby. Now the windows had been barricaded by the owner in three different ways. He was paranoid that they were going to throw finished garments out the window to friends below. So to prevent theft, he had barricaded the windows with iron bars, with glass panes, and with uh, cloth netting. So in order for these women, uh, most of them women, to get out of the building, the only escape was through the windows. Um, and so Alia, uh, at one point, someone used a heavy sewing machine to break through this stuff, all the barricades, um, and people started jumping. Those that jumped straight down fell to the ground and died. Um, those that were lucky enough to survive only survived because they bounced off of bodies or they were knocked in the air and fell through roofs. That's what happened to her. She waited till the end, till the fire was at her back, and a completely black, yawning abyss, all the lights were out, both in the factory and the surrounding area because of a power outage. Imagine this, standing on the ledge. I asked her, the hardest question I probably ever asked a person, what did you think in that moment? And she answered me very clearly. She said, 
I thought that if I stayed, my family would have no body to bury. But if I jumped, they would. And she's a Muslim, and so burial makes, uh, is very important. And she remembered a quote from the Quran, which in Arabic says, every soul shall taste death. And then she jumped. Now, she would have died had she not been knocked in the air by somebody, fallen through a corrugated roof of a nearby building. She was still profoundly injured. She was knocked unconscious, landing on a concrete floor. Found a few hours later, uh, people thought she was dead. They dragged her out, put her in a big pile of bodies. And her brother found her and realized that she was actually alive, took her to a hospital. And she had a broken back, a broken neck, and a fractured skull. Her family, of course, was poor, so they couldn't pay for the medical procedures. So what did they do? They went to a loan shark. They took out money they could never afford to pay back. And to this very day, they're paying a usurious in, uh, uh, interest rate, something like 40% annually. And she's permanently disabled. She has no way of making money again, uh, at least in any kind of gainful employment that she can imagine. But she's got two kids. She's got a husband. One of her friends told me that she was about to be evicted uh, you know, from her little one-room cinder block dwelling because she couldn't afford rent. What does that look like? They'll probably go back to the village. And being permanently disabled as a woman, there isn't a whole heck of a lot you can do. So what happened on the other side of the pond, all the way over here in the US? Well, a media battle broke out between the New York Times and Walmart because the New York Times developed information showing that Walmart was the last company that was making clothes in the factory. Sears also, according to Steve Greenhouse, the reporter there, um, had clothes in the factory. But Walmart and Sears both did what I told you all the brands do. Hey, we didn't know our clothes were being made there. We had nothing to do with it. This factory was not authorized. And they left it at that. So Greenhouse kept developing information and found out that there were other orders that had been sent there from Walmart in the preceding months. Again, Walmart you know, throws up the smokescreen and walks away. Unfortunately, the Times didn't have the budget to send Steve to DACA, and so he was stuck in New York trying to develop this story, and it died like all these stories do. And ultimately, nothing happened. There were three different groups that tried to help these people, uh, nothing like the Rana Plaza collapse. After Rana Plaza, the world turned its attention and various things happened, some good, some, uh, you know, more of a smokescreen. But after Tazreen, virtually, I mean, these people got almost no compensation, almost no help. So the curiosity for me when I was in Dhaka interviewing these women is, okay, so Walmart says that they didn't know what was going on can you confirm that you were making clothes for Walmart on the night of the fire? And they said, absolutely. We were only there after hours on a holiday because a last minute order had come through. And we know all the brands. We make them, we've been making them for years. We see the labels, which is what makes fashion so interesting. When you're making tuna fish, you have no idea what boat it came off of and whether it came from a slave. But with a brand, it's right there on the label. They knew the label and in fact they said, that that very day, Walmart's buyer was in the factory. So, who's telling the truth? Well, this is what's so perverse about this industry and about really the consumer economy writ large. They might both be telling the truth. It's possible that that buyer that they thought was Walmart's buyer was actually a buyer from their supplier, the model factory, or a factory up the food chain that the women knew as Walmart's buyer because they were always there for Walmart's stuff. But Walmart, the company, might not have had anything to do with it. They may very well have sent the whole order to a big model factory in Bangladesh, one of the ones that I walked through and found nothing wrong with. And that one then sent the order down in the last minute to Tazreen, where it ended up being made by these women and then being consumed in flames. This is something that, as consumers, we simply can't get beyond, we can't get beneath, we have no way of knowing who to believe. You have to wonder, but at the end of the day, they might both be telling the truth. Certainly the women aren't lying. So that's the, the problem that exists. There's a veil in the consumer economy and it's concealing the truth about what's actually happening before the products reach our shelves. 
and before we actually then imagine ourselves owning them and then indeed make purchases and buy, there's no way for us to see the blood and sweat and tears that are in many cases literally stitched into the very things that we put on our bodies. I mean, it's, it's quite possible that anything I'm wearing could have been made by the hands of someone who's defined by the ILO as a victim of forced labor or a woman in a sweatshop working uh, 100-hour weeks with no overtime um, on pain of being fired if she gets pregnant or by someone who's being serially raped by her manager. There's no way for me to know. There's no way for you to know. So what do we do about it? Is there anything that we can do about it? There's some who would say, though never in public, I've met them in private, that this kind of abuse is just part of human nature, that it's always been the case that people who have means and power abuse those who are less powerful and poorer. And when I think about the fact that slavery, a subject that I've written about uh, in, in other books, is still with us thousands of years later, it's easy enough to say, okay, there's something to that, I suppose, but I can't possibly agree. There are all kinds of things that we could be doing that we are not doing that would make a difference. So what? So I'm a lawyer. You all are law students or lawyers, law professors. Um, you know, my immediate default is to think the law should have something to say about this. And of course, it does in the United States. So here, 100 years ago, there was a huge battle that was fought between labor and capital. And it was a fraught battle, and it took many years, and some people died in that battle. But at the end of the day, the worker protections that are now in place were put in place because of that. Labor ultimately won. The problem is that with the advent of globalization, manufacturing has gone overseas. And so all of these labor protections that exist here and in Europe no longer apply to the vast, vast majority of items that we're actually buying in our markets. In the emerging markets, in the developing world, there are laws, but imagine enforcing them, often without any kind of, of uh, um, labor movement or labor unions that have any power whatsoever for collective bargaining. These laws are essentially toothless in most countries. And the challenge, of course, is that U.S. law doesn't extend beyond our borders in almost all cases. So the Fair Labor Standards Act doesn't apply in Bangladesh. The National Labor Relations Act doesn't apply in Cambodia. And that's one of the fundamental reasons that manufacturing has left here and gone over there. The fact that law does not apply and has virtually no teeth overseas is entirely intentional. Government does not want to upset business, and business does not want legal accountability, and so they would much prefer to leave it all voluntary. Well, we'll be part of our MSIs, and we'll have our codes of conduct, but we're going to all do this entirely on our own without any oversight from the law. Imagine that, say, a company like Gap made all of its clothes here in the United States. It doesn't, but imagine it did. I mean, if it did, what would happen? All these laws and regulations that are in place that our workers fought for 100 years ago would drive their prices up. And those prices would then either be passed on to the consumer, making their customers mad, or cut into their profits, making their shareholders mad. So Gap doesn't make here. Almost nothing that Gap makes is, is made here in the US. It's made in places like Bangladesh. And in those places, the only kinds of laws that have any teeth are local law, which, like I said, is poorly enforced, or a couple of American laws, one of which is the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which deals with human trafficking, has extra extraterritorial reach thanks to a recent sort of tweak by Congress, and the, uh, the Federal Corrupt Practices Act. Um, and so both of those, those laws do reach the kind of business that most multinational businesses do in the consumer economy. The challenge is that both of them are very hard to apply. So the FCPA. Got it from the horse's mouth just last week. A friend of mine who's an assistant U.S. attorney, a former assistant U.S. attorney from Connecticut, said, look, the FCPA is, is just incredibly hard to apply. The Justice Department has to use it. We have to develop evidence overseas. So we can't get help from any third parties. There's no private right of action. It does, in theory, extend to every layer of the supply chain all the way down to agents of the company doing business in the most far-flung places without knowledge, and this is the key, without knowledge of the company, if they're using bribery, the FCPA can hold the company liable. But again, the proof problem 
is, is often overwhelming, and so the Justice Department doesn't have the resources to really look beneath the surface. Only occasionally do you ever see an FCPA case brought. The Trafficking Act does have a private right of action, and it's been very effective. If you look up, there's a case, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a case in New Orleans that the Southern Poverty Law Center prosecuted a couple of years back. It was a landmark civil action against an American company that was bringing foreign workers into the United States, subjecting them to labor conditions that were, by the definition of the ILO and the Trafficking Act, forced labor, and there was a verdict. The challenge, though, of using the Trafficking Act overseas is, again, the matter of proof. And the Trafficking Act requires, beyond what the FCPA does, it actually requires a knowledge component. So the company actually has to either know that there's human trafficking or forced labor taking place in its supply chain, or have reckless disregard, which is essentially, you know, you should have known. Now, how do you prove that? Especially in a place like Cambodia or Malaysia or Jordan. Really, really hard, even with good people working on it. Incredibly hard to prove, very expensive. And so these sorts of cases just aren't being brought. To, made ma to make matters worse, um, some of you may have heard of the case Kiobel, um, in which the Supreme Court gutted the alien tort statute. For a long time, the ATS was kind of the last uh, option, last resort option for human rights litigators to hold multinationals accountable for um, very serious crimes taking place overseas, crimes considered violations of the law of nations like slavery, like extrajudicial killing and torture. But unfortunately, today, as the way the law stands, American corporations are largely shielded from any sort of criminal or civil liability unless they know or should know that crimes are taking place in their supply chains. This is not because no one has tried to change things. In fact, in Congress, there are a number of groups that brought a bill uh, a number of different times over the course of a few years called the Decent Working Conditions and Fair Competition Act. This uh, it was co-sponsored by then Senator Obama. Uh, would have amended the Tariff Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act to prohibit the import, export, and sale of sweatshop-made goods in the U.S. market. Bill died in committee, never got a floor vote. It died multiple times. Who killed it? The business lobby. Because at the end of the day, again, they don't want legal accountability. They just want to leave it voluntary. So with the law hobbled, it certainly could change, but that would require a significant amount of political clout that right now it's unlikely to imagine in the near future. Is there anyone else who can change things? Well, there are a couple of other groups uh, with influence, consumers and the brands themselves. So consumers are a powerful class. At the end of the day, the $22 trillion that are raked in by uh, consumer-facing brands come from us. So we could conceivably have a role. and. Shoppers, and I especially mean younger ones, millennials, are demanding more and more fair trade products. We're asking for cleaner clothes. We're asking for fair trade coffee and chocolate. We are, in fact, beating that drum. And in, in that, uh, that group, I mean, sort of conscientious consumers are slowly changing and, and reshaping the conversation. But I don't think they're enough to change the game. I don't think we are. I think we're a part of it. I don't think we're enough. And here's why. We are one of the primary beneficiaries of the current system. I mean, ask yourself an honest question. If you were presented with the same product with two different price tags, one five bucks higher than the other, how many times would you choose to buy the more expensive product? I mean, I'm, a, I'm an author. Like, my bread and butter is selling books. And at the end of the day, whether my publishers like this or not, I tend to shop on Amazon instead of going to Barnes & Noble and paying 40% more. It's a challenge, right? We are beneficiaries of the current system. So now, I, I can imagine, and I would say, that in the abstract, most of us as conscientious people would say, okay, look, if you could tell me for sure that you were selling me something that was not made by a slave, that was not made in a sweatshop, that was not made as, as a result of serial rape or other kinds of human rights abuses, I'd be willing to pay, yeah, on margin, a bit more. Just don't tell me that. Tell me that it's clean and just show me the price, whatever that price is, and I'll pay a little bit more. But at the end of the day, we're all people, and I would say across the board in this room and a lot of people you know, who are conscientious consumers have a few bucks extra to spare on these things. It's a challenge when you're asking people 
who are literally living paycheck to paycheck to pay more for their kids' clothes, right? That's, that is, you know, the, the fundamental challenge of consumer activism is that it's really against our collective self-interest. So we can change things, and I think we can change things little by little, but we are not going to change the game. So if that's the case, uh, that leaves the brands. Now you might imagine that the brands are hampered in the same way that we are, that they have no interest whatsoever in changing the status quo. And that would be true if everything else were equal. That would be true if everyone else continued doing business the same way. Imagine one brand deciding, oh, I'm going to charge more or give my shareholders a lower profit margin. I give my competitors an immediate edge. But, and this is something that I've been hearing from lots of different people, and it's an obvious logical conclusion. If one or more major companies decided to change the baseline for everyone else, then everyone else would change with them. For a long time, the fashion industry has been described as a race to the bottom, this endless global quest for cheaper and cheaper labor. But what if one of the big retailers, what if Walmart or Target or Zara decided it was going to retool its business from the ground up and embrace ethical sourcing? What if it said that it was going to publish its global supplier list so that everyone can see who they're doing business with? Map its supply chains, like actually ask the question, what are my tier two, tier three, tier four suppliers? And then root out the worst of them. What if it would bring the people, those millions of workers that none of us get to see, into the light and make them part of their brand? These are the humans who are sewing your clothes. These are the humans who are making the toys you're giving your kids at Christmas. What if one or more of them decided to make not just quality products at low prices part of their brand promise, but products made with a conscience? I mean, Patagonia is doing it. There are some smaller companies that are doing it, but what if one of the major brands decided that they were going to reshape the world, reshape the industry by making this happen? You might think that this is a completely benighted notion, but it's not. Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, wrote a book called The Responsible Company. If you have any interest at all, download it. If I remember correctly, I think it's free. It's one of those things he wrote because he actually wanted to say, this is what a responsible company is in the 21st century. You know what's interesting? Walmart came to him and said, help us. Now, Walmart's interest at that point was more environmental than human rights oriented. It was more to say, look, you know, we need to make our factories greener. You know, we need to try to eliminate some of the waste that goes into our manufacturing and our distribution. Okay, so they're not asking, look, how do we pay our workers more? Because they're not really, they're our workers, right? They're, they're the suppliers' workers. Um, so they're not, they're not going all the way, but at least they're starting to ask the questions. Why are they doing that? It's because the consumer actually has had a voice in shaping the conversation. And with the culture changing, Walmart execs are human beings. Like I said earlier, companies are just human beings. And though they have incentives, and those incentives sometimes block the better angels in human nature, when given a chance, those angels shine. And so Walmart has decided, look, we need to actually get greener. If there were other companies pushing as hard on human rights as Patagonia has on, particularly on environmental, the environmental side, perhaps Walmart would decide to do business differently. I think that's quite possible. See, I would say that the future of corporate social responsibility is going to be driven by brand level change. Eventually, I hope the political climate shifts so we can make better laws and give them extraterritorial bite. But right now, that's unlikely to happen soon. The most powerful actor in the mix today is not the consumer, but the brands themselves. And business, when given the right incentives, can clean up its own act. So let me give you a hopeful example. Back in the 90s, I was a kid. I remember seeing Nike exposed as one of the worst abusers of human rights overseas. Sweatshops everywhere. The media plastered Nike all over the world saying, look, you know, this is how your shoes are being made. They took an enormous hit. Every brand is so conscious of its reputation. So they took it to heart. They didn't just paper it over. They actually changed. And today, in this field, experts would say that Nike is one of the better companies as far as ethical sourcing is concerned. It did not happen because of the law, it happened because Nike changed. They saw the damage that was done when the truth came out, 
and they decided to change. So we can, we, all of us, can take meaningful action to eradicate these, this level of exploitation that's happening in the supply chains of the things we buy. But it's only going to happen if we're willing to ask the questions, what is happening in the past? How are these products getting to my shelves or the shelves where I'm buying them? Who's making them? Who made my clothes? Who made the toys I'm giving my kids? Who made my food? To pierce that veil and see the truth. And if we see it and if we talk about it and enough, if enough of us talk about it, ultimately I think change is inevitable. Thank you. I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have about this or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, one of the challenges with any kind of um, legal enforcement is that you, you sort of change the playing field for some versus others. And that's one of the reasons why a, a kind of broad-based law that would apply to all would level the playing field. And that's actually something that, that was the reason behind that, that Decent Working Conditions and Fair Competition Act. It would level the playing field for everybody. Um, as far as the Bangladeshi uh, government and workers are concerned, sure. I mean, the Bangladeshi government is absolutely in cahoots uh, in allowing this kind of thing to happen because they don't want to ruffle too many feathers. So they're not going to ask questions unless they're forced to. But for them, it's just a matter of keeping the business there, like you said. Um, but these are, you know, the wealthy ones. Uh, these are not, you know, the people at the bottom. Now, the people at the bottom, absolutely. I mean, look, the Tazreen workers were grateful to have a job at the Tazreen Fashions factory until it burned and until they were forced to jump out of windows and have permanent disabilities. And, of course, all, you know, all humans are grateful to have some kind of job that pays some kind of uh, wage. I mean, I, I met workers in Malaysia who are Bangladeshi who'd been brought... Uh, from Bangladesh through various fraudulent labor schemes, every single one of them, every single one of them, I met them in their, their hostel where it was this room where they had beds and a little kitchen area and a, and a bathroom. Um, I, you know, every single one of them was uh, a victim of forced labor. Now, every single one of them also said, we are the lucky ones. We work in, in a pretty good factory. We're making Reebok, uh, Mizuno, Adidas, but we know friends who work in the subsidiary factories, and gosh, it's awful there. And I'm thinking, the worst guy, I mean, the guy whose situation was the worst, he worked for three years before he made a dime. Three years. He was an effective slave. So, and he's saying, thank God for my job. So, yes, absolutely. There, there is a need to, to look at, and, and this is one of the things that I, that I, I didn't say, but, but I like to harp on sort of, in talking to the people that I'm talking to, because I'm actually involved in advocacy on this. I mean, one of the things that um, brands need to start thinking about is uh, not treating your suppliers like um, sex workers. Um, the average brand, uh, you know, acts like a playboy. They just stick around as long as they're interested, and then they leave. So commitment is actually a critical element um, in the long run of 
encouraging suppliers to be more transparent and to make the changes that are necessary. And commitment is not something that necessarily impacts profit right away. If you commit to somebody, you then give them stability to make certain changes, then they can, in fact, very often increase their own efficiencies, and those efficiencies benefit the bottom line. So, and yet, the average sourcing person doesn't think in those terms. They just think in terms of, we have our metrics that we have to meet, we have our, you know, our price points, we have our delivery times, and we have this vast smorgasbord of options, and they're all the same. Doesn't matter if it's in Cambodia or Myanmar or Madagascar or Honduras or Mexico. I mean, we're gonna go wherever it's cheapest and easiest to make these clothes, and, and then you know, we're gonna keep our price points the same, and we're, as sourcing people, gonna be happy. But if we start thinking, and really from the top down, in a different kind of way, you actually can make changes that don't necessarily undermine the brand's bottom line, but would in fact give suppliers the kind of stability they need to start doing things better. So there are changes that can be made internally. The best level change is one that levels the playing field across the board. Um, and yeah, look, I, I'm not gonna sit here and say that if, if prices were raised, if uh, wages were improved, if labor unions were stronger, um, in Bangladesh that there wouldn't in fact be the problem of transference, the business wouldn't go to Myanmar, a cheaper place. In fact, you're already seeing that. But you're seeing that in the current market. So I think that all else being equal, we at least need to try and try to be conscientious about, you know, what kind of externalities there are going to be. Anybody else? Yeah. Sure. Um, so I'll take the international part first. There are uh, quite a few people. Um, a lot of celebrities are interested in this. Uh, you know, it's it's actually been really interesting talking to these these folks and making friends with them. Um, people that are way out of my circles, but suddenly now are are in them. Um, and and you know, they're all interested in the UN, and they're all interested in you know the International Criminal Court, and and you know, my perspective is is just that like. The power of the UN really is to convene people more than anything else. Enforcement has always been a challenge for the United Nations and for um, international bodies that are fundamentally voluntary. And this is, of course, true for the multi-stakeholder initiatives that the brands are a part of. Anything that's voluntary, if you, you don't really get meaningful enforcement. But the convening power is very real, and it needs to be talked about more. So one of the things that's actually happening, I think it's tomorrow, it's a friend of mine, um, who's involved in a foundation, put together this big sort of uh, multi-stakeholder push in the UN that's actually gonna get in front of the Security Council um, for re their 10 resolutions. And they're focused on eradicating human trafficking and conflict zones. There are a lot of ways of getting at these things, right? So one of the things they're focusing on is, is transparency in supply chains. So sure, the Security Council, if it votes to ratify that resolution, there's gonna be some degree of moral force to this, and there's a lot of money out there. I can tell you that there are a lot of billionaires right now searching for a cause, um, and some of them are picking this up. It's intriguing. Um, and, and so you know, there's a, there's a, there is a role for international bodies um, in making a change. As far as um, enforcement on the ground, I mean, is there a race to the bottom? I think that you know, if you look at Bangladesh or if you look at, uh, you know, Cambodia, I mean, unless it's an outside body like the ILO coming in and saying, you know, we are bringing our people without any oversight from the government, we're going to work with the government, we're going to bring our people, we are not subject to budget cuts, we are not subject to your authority, we are not subject to the corruption that very often happens. Unless you have a group like that doing the work, um, it's unlikely that enforcement's going to happen. Now, I will say, and I'm going to, you know, I will, uh, I'll stand on this. I mean, I, what was ultimately effective in the labor movement 100 years ago here, it was collective action. It was workers banding together and forming unions, which now, unfortunately, are very weak in the West. But back then, they were strong. That is probably one of the most effective ways 
of changing things, is having the workers get to speak for themselves. But of course, as it was in this country, so it is in places like Bangladesh, you have workers band together, and what happens? They get beaten, um, they get threatened. If you're a foreign worker and you're on a visa, that visa is going to get revoked. You try to organize in your factory, you're gone. And if you're gone, that means probably the loan you took out to pay your recruiter some exorbitant amount of money to bring you to the factory is going to get called and defaulted on, and then that default is going to lead to a foreclosure upon probably your family's only piece of property, which was put up for collateral on that recruitment loan. And so is there an incentive to organize in a place like that, you know, in places where foreign workers are the primary workers in the garment sector, or the electronic sector, or a lot of different sectors? No. So, you know, we need to see more organization, but we need to see more protection. And I would say one of the biggest things that governments can do is to at least you know protect those union organizers um, that are doing their work. The challenge right now is simply that they don't have a huge incentive to do that unless business comes to them and says, this is what we want you to do for everyone in this country, not just for our brand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, um, in my story, uh, one of my main characters is a, uh, the general counsel for this multi-billion dollar uh, multinational. It's an omni-channel retailer, something like, it's fictional because I didn't want to get sued. Um, and so, you know, it's not any existing company, but you could imagine it being, you know, something like Walmart or Target. Um, so he actually goes to Bangladesh after a fire, a fictional fire that's based on the, the Tazreen fashions. Um, incident and and the first place he goes is to the model factory and that's actually where he gets the truth um, so yes in fact if the brand is interested if brands are interested in finding out the truth that's where Patagonia goes I mean they have to go to their their top tier suppliers they don't always know what what's beneath but they, they start asking questions um, as far as you know enforcement I uh, going to the model factories and, and asking I mean here's the challenge right um, if if you're in a cutthroat industry and you're just trying to make ends meet yourself, and this is true for most of these factories. In fact, I had one woman who's, you know, the, uh, with her husband, the, the head of one of the oldest garment factory or garment businesses, garment suppliers in Bangladesh, tell me that um, right now, you know, they're not making money like they used to. And because ultimately the brands are always squeezing margin from the top always squeezing margin. And they're not going to say no, they're just going to find a way to make it work. Of course they're going to find a way to make it work. So, you know, uh, this woman basically said, look, I'm, I'm funding my factories right now with, with money I'm making in real estate. And so the challenge is, it's not just getting in the model factory, it's, it's asking the fundamental question, why are these abuses taking place? Is it just because there are an inordinate number of bad apples, you know, that are managers in, fact, in garment factories around the world? Or is in fact this a lot of this happening because of the way that the market works and the way that sourcing people do their business and think about their suppliers um, and treat them or mistreat them? Um, is it actually caked into the system? And in some sense, it really is. So that's why I say I think at the end of the day, the brands you know have the most power, far more than government, more than consumers, the ability to move very quickly and clean things up like Nike did if they want to. But that's where they have to start, honestly. They have to have an honest conversation with their actual suppliers. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. There, there is, but not to the same extent. I mean, uh, if you look at, say, the coffee industry or chocolate, I mean, fair trade is caught on. I mean, you, you see it everywhere, right, fair trade. But there, there is a kind of fair trade thing in clothing, but, but not to the same extent. Now, what would it take to get there? Frankly, I think it would take somebody like, you know, the Starbucks of clothing to say, we're going to do this. Um, and to my knowledge, that's not happening. So... And I'm, you know, could possibly be in the works. It could be that somebody is at this very moment 
uh, you know, major brand deciding to do fair trade or, or release. I heard that at one point I heard that Target's new CEO was launching a fair trade label. I don't buy clothes from Target, so I don't know, but um, it's possible, and that would be good. I mean, that would be a step in the right direction. But frankly, as far as I'm concerned, until it, it's like, if you, and all of us know this, like from the, from the ground up, Patagonia has made it part of their brand promise that we make clothes that are not only quality, that we will take back. I mean, they'll actually recycle clothes. We, we, we make the best quality clothes, and you know that we, uh, we care, and we actually do care about how they're being made and what impact they're having on the humans and the environment. Um, that go into making them. And so that's part of their brand promise. That, it's that level um, that I, I would love to see somebody do. And, and here's the thing, and you, if you read the story, um, investors actually have a role to play. I didn't, I didn't mention this, but um, it's not just the brands themselves uh, in making sort of executive level or, or middle management level decisions. It's investors. There are a lot right now. I don't know if you all saw the Atlantic piece on Al Gore's company, Generation Investment Management. They did a 10-year study with about 100 million, I think, was their capital. So it wasn't you know, one of the biggest hedge funds, but they came out, they beat the market, and they were only investing in environmentally conscious uh, companies. So there are there's social capital, there, um, not social capital, uh, just capital, um, and gosh, the name, the name of the guy, Paul Tudor Jones, a UVA alum, um, is behind that. There are uh, numerous groups out there. And what, what we really need to do is we need to reach you know, the Gates and the Buffets, and there are people who know them um, and are working on it. So I would love to see investors start to say, beyond just the activists who are kind of the corporate raiders, um, you know, looking to make a buck. I mean, people start to say, look, you know, we're only going to invest in companies that are actually taking this positive role because we think that in the long run if we're out front of this we're going to make more money you look at the sea change this is what everybody's saying the millennials are going to redefine the world and so it, any company that harnesses that now and says we're going to be a leader and change our industry to attract them i think is going to make a whole lot more money in the long run Yeah, I'm happy to take both, yeah. Um, I, I would say number one, what's that? Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think uh, there are a lot of lawyers who are either um, general counsel or in-house counsel or who work um, on corporate work. And, and who are working with uh, big companies and brands. I mean, a lot of people coming from a place like UVA go to top firms and end up working for the big brands. Now, obviously, you have you know, your uh, attorney-client relationship, and you're, if you're a litigator, you're advocating. If you're a you know, business lawyer, you're obviously trying to get the best deal you can. Um, but you know, these, are, these are questions that really need to be raised. And so in my book, um, after this fire happens, the general counsel you know, he's not aware of what's going on in Bangladesh. I mean, he really isn't. And most people at the very top of the C-suite doesn't know. They, they really don't know. All they're getting is reports from down low. And, you know, what he finds, what he realizes when he sees this, this sort of photo that I invented that, you know, is, is kind of like Napalm Girl, if you will, in, in uh, Vietnam. It's this photograph of a young girl who's lying in the dirt, her face covered by a mask that turns out to be a pair of child's pants with the label of the company over her mouth. Like this photo just fans the flames all around, it goes viral around the world and suddenly he's, he's forced to look. He's forced to ask the question, how did this happen and how can we prevent it from happening again? And so what he realizes is through his investigation internally and he hires an outside group to come in and tell him things he doesn't know about risk. And see, this is one of the things that actually as lawyers, we have a role in telling our clients, where is the risk? Where are, the, the, where, where are the mines? How do we avoid going off a cliff? And this is something that we can tell our clients. I mean, from, from everything from trafficking to bribery um, to you know, uh, reputational damage from the media, these are things that brands, you know, they're thinking about optics, they're thinking about reputation, but they're not often thinking about the possibility that some enterprising group of lawyers, as happens in my story, um, would actually bring a, 
a massive lawsuit against a brand exposing what's going on and asking for you know, millions of dollars in damages and parading um, victims who are probably some of the most sympathetic victims you can imagine in front of a jury. No company wants that. So there are ways that we can influence it. I mean, the other thing is, you know, groups like Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, like Betsedic, which is a group out in California, um, they are bringing public interest uh, lawsuits. They, it's funny, when I talked to Betsedic, they asked me, or, you know, I, I said, look, you know, you're, you're suing the brands, but in the Labor Commission, because California actually makes the brands guarantors of the wages of, uh, of workers. And so it's easier to go through the Labor Commissioner and get some money. And the fast fashion brands that are making in the U.S., um, all of them are making in sweatshops in L.A., and uh, they, they just constantly are paying out. So um, Betsetic is pretty much limited to bringing those sorts of cases because they can't find plaintiffs who would be willing to say, look, I'll sit around for three years bringing a big public interest lawsuit that might actually change the world but also, also might never give me any money um, because, you know, they were, of course, these are poor people who were stiff to begin with. So one challenge is finding plaintiffs. Um, I just continue to see this. I mean, I'm, I'm right now, and just wrap with this. I mean, there is right now in the world, um, and it's the source of a lot of political discord, but it's also, I think, um, a potential for hope. There is enormous, enormous, enormous amount of money in the hands of people who are asking, starting to ask questions about what to do with it. It's not just the Gates and the Buffets of the world. It's not just, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, some of them are, you know, from Silicon Valley, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are just finance guys. And I've got friends up in New Canaan, in that area, Bridgeport, um, you know, Greenwich, sort of within 50 miles, something like 40% of the world's economy is controlled by people, you know, who have hedge funds that are managing billions upon billions of dollars, and they now all have foundations. They're all looking for things to do. And, you know, if you can convince them, look, this isn't going to... This is actually going to make you a hero, and this is one of the things that happens in my story. An investor steps up and is willing to invest in this company. Without that investment, the company would be completely unwilling to do what's necessary to change its business model. But with that investment, they are willing. And in fact, they're on the right side of history, and likely in the long run, it will make that investor and the company richer for it. So we need to be able to, you know, we need to find ways to convince the people with the money that this is actually in their interest to get involved in this.